Good morning. Good morning. We turn off a light, Pastor Mark. Is that what's happening? Too, too bright? Gotcha. Let's do it. Let's do it. Oh, it's the shields. We need to figure that out. Pastor Mark's on it. Pastor Mark, you want to come and just finagle? Welcome to Hope Church. I'm glad you're here. We're one big family. Thanks for joining us online. My name is Ross, one of the pastors here. Today we're going to be diving into this new series called Reasonable Doubts, uh, jumping into um, maybe some big faith questions that you might have, but oftentimes maybe those of us around us have about our faith. Uh, and I'm super excited to dive into this. Uh, doubts are really important. They matter. Uh, if you think of our doubts or big faith questions, uh, they matter in the sense of we have them, <laughs> so they should matter, right? But yet, what we do with them matters all the more. See, when it comes to doubts, we can actually seek after truth and understanding, which then would help us walk through our doubts. Thanks, Pastor Mark. He's just an all-star, you know? Like, one moment this, one moment that. He'll figure it out. But, but also, we can discover evidence to help us understand that through our doubts, there's more than just where we sit today. Travis Dickinson, a professor, philosopher, uh, study at the University of Iowa, wrote this book called Wondering Towards God, Finding Faith Admits Doubts and Big Questions. And part of his point is to understand and illuminate the misunderstanding between doubts and our faith. That instead of thinking that doubts actually oppose our faith, what if our doubts could lead us to greater faith in our life? He writes these words, doubt isn't our destination, but it's an important step along the way. As we encounter them and as we seek after truth and understanding and evidence that would actually help our doubts come to fruition, that not be our destination, but be a place that we've taken a step through today and throughout our whole life. That God is, like Pastor Mark said, big enough for our questions, for our doubts. And yet maybe amidst our faith, we face many different doubts. And maybe throughout this series, we don't actually get to your doubts or questions. But let me encourage you, wherever you're at, to keep asking Keep seeking. Let doubts be a step that you take to find the truth and evidence through your faith. And so I'm super excited for this series, but let me kind of illuminate this to you and doubts because partly when I think of doubts, I immediately think of my backyard. So not too long ago, I was gifted an amazing playset. And it was like near the end of the fall, and you know what happened is I was in charge of moving it, so I disassembled it and did all this stuff, drug it into my backyard with me and a few of my friends, and then left it there because it was cold. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's still cold. I don't want to do that. So I left it throughout the end of the fall and to Christmas time. All the guys are in here pretty much to help me move it. You know where it was. And I left it in there, and throughout this process, you could then be thinking of my neighbors, and their doubts that would arise in seeing my backyard with an unbuilt playset, right? You know, throughout time, they would see a playset yet to be built. And so, of course, in their minds, growing in doubt that it would ever be built. They saw the beautiful pieces laying down that squirrels were somehow making a home of. Uh, I still got to figure that out. Uh, you know, and they saw these, the swing set that looked like it could be beautiful uh, that yet wasn't uh, anymore yet. And so throughout the time of maybe their doubts, which I don't know, my neighbors are wonderful. I actually don't know if they doubted that I would do it. So I don't know. I should, I should go ask them that though. Um, but maybe amidst their doubts, you know what happened is a few weeks ago, I began to put together the playset. 
And see, they could have perceived in the backyard a bunch of doubts that it would ever be come to be in what it is. But yet, what showed them and walked them through their potential doubt in that area? The evidence, the truth, that I was forming a playset out of once was not a playset. You know what I'm saying? Like they were able to see the growth of a playset from nothing to something that finally their neighbor was doing something with it, you know? And amidst their doubts and what would ever be done, illuminated the evidence and truth to what stands there now as a partially built playset. I'm still working on it, everyone, okay? <laughs> to my neighbors, I'm sorry. I'm still getting there, okay? And that's nothing to think poorly of my neighbors. They have reasons to believe I, I wouldn't do it, you know? Because if you remember, I'm not a green thumb either. So come to my house and you'll see weeds, all right? So it's just part of the thing, okay? But let me encourage you that similarly to our faith, amidst our doubts, we can seek after evidence and truth that similar to a silly place set in my backyard could illuminate through our doubts, as Travis is saying, a step instead of a destination. That we don't sit in our doubts, yet we're encouraged and really convicted to, I believe, take steps towards evidence and truth. So two encouragements for you in the room, because today is going to feel a little different. Uh, we're going to dive into what we saw at Easter, what we celebrated at Easter for today's topic, but it's going to be a little different. And I, I just want to encourage you in the room. One, if you don't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, stick with me, because I believe you're asking, you're wondering, you're questioning really, really important things. And I'm standing as a testament in front of you, but also the people in this room that are glad you're here. And that you'd be so bold enough to sit here today and continue your wondering and questioning to find evidence of Jesus who truly changes everything. So that's for you if, you if you would say you don't follow Jesus, you're unsure. But for those of you who do follow Jesus in the room, there's many of you, and I, I know some of you. But if you do, may you also stick with me. And maybe as we go through some evidence and truth, not to write it off as things I just always knew, that sure, you may be resolved in some of the things we cover today, but may you, as the words of Peter in 1 Peter 3, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, always prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. May you, believer, grow to admire Jesus more today. May you grow to be prepared to share today. May you always, with gentleness and respect, share the hope that you have within you. That you as believers sit here in part with the Holy Spirit, a person of Christ, of God in you, that you are able to live out by the fruit of that gentleness, kindness, love, and care for those around you, and especially in navigating doubts. Maybe today you learn that the doubt isn't the destination for your friends that are far from God, but actually a step along the way. Maybe you've been a part of too. So I'm going to pray for us before we dive in. I got a lot of stuff uh, to jump into today. A lot of good stuff. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for illuminating the truth to us by your word, God. But also may we, as we dive into historical context and evidence we see um, regarding the resurrection of Jesus, God, may we uh, take it to heart for what it means for our faith. God, thank you for being such a good God who leads us out of valleys, uh, from mountaintops. God, we thank you for the moments you have us step into. May we just trust you along every step of the way. In Jesus' name, amen. 
All right, so as, as kind of normal, if you've been a part of Hope Church, we really open up the Word and let the Word lead the way. And that's what we're going to do today, too, in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to start in verse 12. So you'll see the Scripture references on the screen. If you see a page number in Broader Bible, the page number probably won't line up with your Bible, sorry, but it lines up with the one under your chair. So if you need a page number reference, you want to jump into the Bible with us. My encouragement to you, just like I encourage anyone, is that don't just take my word for reading it. You read it yourself, too. So pull it up on your phone, uh, on your paper Bible, one below your seat, or share with a neighbor, whichever. It would be great. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. We're going to start there in 1 Corinthians 15, 12. This is Paul speaking, and he says this, but, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he has raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ... We are of all people most to be pitied. So this comes right after a section we're about to jump in today to launch in, in our seeking and evidence this morning of the resurrection of Jesus. And you see Paul's words here are very, very important and should be to us today. That if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, if there's no resurrection of the dead and Jesus has not been raised, then what are the consequences? That our faith is useless in verse 14. That we are false witnesses. We have a false testimony. Again, in verse 15. But yet also the Easter we just celebrated that Jesus paid it all for through the death and resurrection of his body for our sin. Right? Verse 17 so explicitly says by Paul, then we are still in our sins. Our faith is useless. We are false witnesses. Or, or, we have a false testimony. We are still in our sins if Christ has not been raised. And so thus begs the big faith question we want to dive into today. Has Christ truly been raised from the grave? And that is a big question that many wrestle in doubt of, is that true? And today, my prayer is that as we illuminate God's word and talk through, like I said, historical references, we are able to see the truth that be, that Jesus is risen and risen indeed. And the way we celebrate is in truth, is in life, is in a new life without sin. That's my conclusion that I'll get to soon. We're going to get there together, though, okay? You ready? Notice here in verse 19, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all most people to be pitied. Again, just this, uh, Paul illuminating, if Christ has not been raised, so then, let's go before this passage where Paul lays out the very account in Christ's life, both death, burial, and resurrection. We're going to 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. So right before that passage on the same page, most likely, but you'll see it on the screen if you have a Bible in the room. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Paul says this, For what I have received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. 
See, this chunk of, of Scripture is, is well known as the Apostles' Creed or Resurrection Creed, and it was written 25 years after the death of Jesus by Paul here. But yet the key note in verse is verse 3. Paul says in verse 3, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. This is so beautiful because this very phrase that Paul's using is actually something we do all the time. We pass on things to our loved ones, right? We pass on truth to our kids. We pass on truth to our friends, right? The truth that we have received and thus want others to know. And that's so beautiful. Like we call that our testimony. We call that our, our experience, maybe wherever. But oftentimes we, we pass on things that we know to be true. And Paul is in the same scenario for what I received, I then pass on to you. But the reference here is important. Because even though Paul's written this 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, what he's referring to to be passed on was written actually within months, many scholars believe, within the resurrection of Jesus. The account that which he actually died was buried, resurrected, and then appeared to many. So you're tracking with me now. Tracking with the credibility now that Paul's speaking with, not only for what he received, but also he's passing along of first importance. Which, who is he talking about of first importance? Jesus. So unique that the one points up. Jesus, right? Jesus in me through the Spirit, right? And so Paul's passing on what he received, and today we're going to begin a method that many, many amazing scholars, Josh McDowell, Sean McDowell, Gary Habermas, and many more, William Lane Craig, would take the approach of actually looking at the key evidence found in 1 Corinthians and beginning to dissect and take steps through actually seeing the factuality, but also the reasonable faith in which we believe through each of them. And so we're going to do that today. You guys ready? Yes. It'll be fun. Okay. Let's do this. All right. Let's go ahead and chunk through it together in 1 Corinthians 15. Here we go. For I received, I passed on to you of first importance that Christ died for his sins. So verse 3, died for his sins, that, that he was buried in verse 4, that he was raised in verse 4 again, and that he also appeared in verse 5. So let's go ahead and begin to unravel and, and, and look into these each individually together. Ready? That Jesus died. Let's start there. So we know that if you've written the, read the Bible before or walked through it or not, it's okay. Now you can know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are what we call the Gospels, and they actually really profoundly speak on Jesus' death. They talk through it, even his death and resurrection, all that, but specifically his death. It's, it's recorded in each of those things. But maybe we actually take a step back and we can narrow ourselves down to a few New Testament scholars who actually are non-Christians at all. Here's their findings on the very fact that Jesus died. Gerd Ludeman, he's an atheist, says Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. Bert Ehrman, another agnostic, the crucifixion of Jesus by the Romans is one of the most secure facts we have about his life, that Jesus truly died. Uh, later on, we see even ancient writers way back when Cornelius Tacitus, AD 56 to AD 120, Roman historian writes of Jesus' death. Flavius Josephus, AD 37 time frame, a Jewish politician, shoulder, soldier, historian, uh, writes on the factuality of Jesus' death. And so without uh, much, really anything different than what we see, we can almost determine with, without a shadow of a doubt together that Jesus truly died. It is true that he died. Now, let's, let's, like, like, let's approach the more important topic here for this one second of these names are incredible, right? Cornelius Tacitus, Flavius Josephus, those are such great names. 
Um, I, I shared this with the first service I should today. It kind of slipped out, but my wife Noelle and I are expecting a new little baby this fall. We're so excited. Thank you. So excited. I didn't mean that for a round of applause, but thank you. I appreciate it. Love you all. Uh, it kind of slipped out in the first service, and I was like, these are my people too. I don't want to like, you don't want the first service people to be like, did you hear the news? And then you're like, what news, right? Uh, but we're expecting a new baby. So with all that, as I was reading these names, I was immediately thinking, we're taking new name suggestions around here. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Flavius, Flavius may make the cut. I'm like excited. Uh, my wife, Noelle's in here. She probably doesn't agree. Cornelius, though, babe, like Cornelius, that'd be so great. Anyways, these are such great rich names, but that's actually beside the point. These few historians would resolve in this fact to be true that Jesus died, which we can, with, with completely agreement, say that Jesus truly died here on earth. But yet, let us look at maybe an objection that's often brought up in what's called the swoon theory. So swoon theory is this idea that maybe Jesus didn't truly die, but he actually just passed out on the cross, was carried to the tomb, and then woke up again. But yet, the, the biggest hole in that is that crucifixion at the time was the most brutal, severe form of public death that someone could face to be crucified. That, he, that Jesus was beaten, uh, broken, uh, nailed to a cross, and thus publicly seen to die. That for the swoon theory to hold up would <laughs> truly be remarkable. And I think the largest hole is that there's no way it could because of those severe facts found in the crucifixion. That Jesus were to actually die upon the cross, that people would publicly see that. And that he couldn't have just passed out from all his pain and then somehow in the tomb... Uh, heal from his, like, recover from his wounds and still just be passed out and alive. So Jesus died. That's our first clear fact and area we find from 1 Corinthians 15. The second is this, he was buried. And this is really important as we look into the burial of Jesus, the whereabouts in which he was buried. And we're going to find that in Matthew 27, verse 57. So again on the screen, Matthew 27, verse 57, together, we're going to walk through this understanding of Jesus' burial and why the key evidence is important to understand where he was buried to begin with. So Matthew 27, verse 57, says this. Matthew 27, 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and then Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and placed it in his own tomb that he had cut out of rock. He then rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. And maybe some of us pick up that Roman soldiers were put in front of the tomb, and we know that whole picture there. But why is this really severely important to understand the evidence of where Jesus was buried to begin with? Well, Joseph of Arimathea was a member of what's called the Sanhedrin, essentially like a, a ruling group, kind of like a supreme court of this time. And the Sanhedrin was people well-known, kind of like how we maybe don't well know those people in the Supreme Court, but we generally know them. They're of public database. We could see who they are and their general lifestyle of who they were, right? And so similarly, Joseph was one of these people that was really, really well-known. Even so much so, he was a guy who was then became a disciple of Jesus, the word says, and thus does what? When Jesus dies from the cross, he then takes his body and buries him where? in his own tomb, a tomb by which would be well known to the people amongst them, a tomb that is like, this is huge evidential uh, evidence that shows us that by Joseph's account, his tomb would be well known, but not only that, the Roman guard placed in front, that he rolled the stone ahead and, and there he lay. Jesus was truly buried. 
Excellent evidence we find in Joseph's account here in Scripture. And let's go to our third point. He was raised. So Jesus being risen from the dead, let's dive into this account in Matthew 28. It's going to be in verse 1. Matthew 28 verse 1 says this, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. First of all, picture that. Like, that's crazy. Like, I'm only imagining what their response, we're about to get to it, their response here. Um, so then in verse, uh, we're back at the verse 3, his appearance was, white, was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. Verse 4, the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So now we see the response of an angel in front of the tomb, right? Like these soldiers then that we know are, are in front of the tomb uh, shook and became like dead men. Like they're just so overwhelmed. But can we like mention the response from the angels here that is so often throughout scripture, hundreds of times that, that the Lord says to us or uses angels to say to us, and it's this phrase, do not be afraid. I think that's so unique in a moment where uh, maybe they're encountering angels or even Jesus here in a moment, which, which we'll talk about, like, do not be afraid. What does that show us about God's character and his nature? Is that he loves us, he's with us. I think similarly like my kids, like when they get shaken or afraid of a situation they've never been put in with me, and what do I say? Do not be afraid. It's okay. I'm with you. I've got this. You can trust me. I think that same phrase is used oftentimes in our relation of the fear we may have in a situation or a moment of change and the fear we may have when God shows up in a unique, miraculous way, a fear of trembling or uncertainty, and yet God reminds us, do not be afraid. He says the same things to the Marys here, do not be afraid, do not be afraid. Jesus did as he said. I love that they added that. Jesus did what he said he was going to do, okay? Don't be afraid. You knew this was going to happen, right? But yet afterwards, they run away. Verse 8, afraid yet filled with joy, and suddenly Jesus entered this picture. And I love, I was laughing with my intern, Nolan. I love this moment where Jesus enters because it seems different to me. Like, like instead of just, uh, he's sitting at a table, they go to a room and he's there. He like pops out and, and encounters them. And what's his first words? Greetings. And it's like, you're Jesus. Like, you're Jesus, you're here, like, greetings. Again, he says, do not be afraid. I'm with you. I did as I said. I have risen. I'm in front of you. Here's some key evidence that we can look into in understanding this, this complex that Jesus actually appeared to many, but also that we'll talk about in a moment, that he was truly raised. We can actually look at what's called the enemy response, and it's in Matthew 28. Matthew 28, if we can go there together. Matthew 28. I'll go there with you too. Matthew 28. We're actually going to go to verse 11. I forgot to add it on the screen. So I'm sorry. Look one more verse up. And this is what's called the enemy response for this very reason we'll read together today. Matthew 28 verse 11 says this. 
While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them this, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were still asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Why might we call this the enemy response? It's because the same people who knew Jesus to actually die and be buried in the tomb, Joseph of Arimathea, were then devising a plan that when Jesus wasn't there, just tell someone that the disciples stole him. We'll work this out. He can't be actually raised. This points us to the factual evidence that Jesus' body wasn't presently there in the tomb. You could also think if we look back to the prominence of the tomb, and if the tomb wasn't so prominent and maybe they mistaken one tomb for another, then they would easily resolve, hey, that was the wrong tomb, go and look at this one. Oh, there's his body. Jesus didn't raise from the dead. But that's not what happened. Jesus truly raised from the dead. And I believe the evidence uh, shows us that with, with very, very much clarity that he actually factually was raised. And then finally, our last point before we get into some uh, closing just encouragements today is that he appeared, that Jesus appeared. Remember, Paul wrote wrote through these in 1 Corinthians 15, but we're going to read that portion one more time together. 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8. And he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. So Paul begins to build this case of understanding where and when and who Jesus appeared to. I think it's really credible that Paul would even add that most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep or passed away, right? Like he's talking through this instance that you could actually go in this context to some people who had actually seen Jesus themselves. They may still be living. And and, and so further evidence of understanding who Jesus appeared to. But let's get to the accurate account here, right? The Marys at the tomb, Cephas, who's Peter, the rest of the disciples, 500 other people, James and all the apostles, and then Paul. And Paul's being the writer of our context today. Paul was on this journey and then explicitly in his transformation, you should read it sometime, it's crazy, blindness and and calling from the Lord and experiences and the Lord appears to him in a unique way, uh, which totally changed the trajectory of his life. And so Paul saying, "And, and me, though abnormally born, like it's me, he's appeared to me. All of these are based on these visionary moments of people seeing Jesus, both visually and physically. And if you think about it, even in our world today, both visual and physical evidence is held to high regard. Not only our judicial system, but even in my household with my kids. Have you seen mom? Yeah. What do you need? I just need water. So have you seen mom? I'm like, well, I can help you. No, but have you seen mom? (laughs) Yes, she was in the kitchen earlier running there. She's not in there anymore. Where, where could she have been? Right? Like, like my daughter's relying on my visual testimony, testament of experiencing witnessing my wife for a need that I can meet, okay? Come on, Della. <laughs> my wife often says that to her kids, you know dad is here. He can help you with these things. And you know what she says? No, I need mom, okay? And I'm like, gosh, am I just failing as dad? I don't know. I'm just kidding. But see, this this eyewitness testimony account is very, very important and clear to us that Jesus appeared to many 
and not only many, to some very specific writers like Paul throughout Scripture, James, his half-brother. These moments where Jesus appeared to many is super crucial in the evidence we can understand that he truly did. And so, as we briefly discussed his death, burial, resurrection, and appearance, um, I, I couldn't help but encourage you to maybe see where Jesus shows up in your own life too. That as far as him showing up visually, uh, physically to many that are referenced here in Scripture, I believe Jesus shows up in our life all the time. That, that we can look around and we see just moments where Jesus shows up in a miraculous way through an answered prayer, through a, a tensioned relationship that we've been working on, and God just shows up and brings peace and direction. That, that Jesus, I believe, by his spirit that resides in us, appears and shows up in so many different forms. That's surely not physical. Of course, I would love that testimony of being like on the Heritage Trail and then Jesus, greetings, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, yo, what? But he, he, Jesus shows up in our lives so often. And yet if we were to pause and think and reflect at how often he does, maybe we, we could reconcile the same, that he's truly appeared, that he is so good. That, that although not physical for us, he's appeared spiritually in depth, healed us from moments and circumstance, and we can praise him for that, that he shows up in our everyday, because he's a good God that wants to, that does, that promises that. So what are then, if we re- reviewed our four key areas or facts, what are then some opposing arguments? This is probably what I have the most fun in, because as you as believers in the room, as the scriptures say, always building a case to, 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 to defend the hope that you have within you, but also for those of you who are wondering, maybe you've heard of some of these theories that would contradict to the true uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that I was just illuminate today that we can learn together. And I'll share some holes that I see in them, that I've, I've researched and found in them, but maybe you could have more too or less, and we can talk more about it. After, But the first one being this, opposing theory one, mass hallucination theory. Okay, so when it comes to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, him appearing to anyone, there's some who say that this is just a mass hallucination, that everyone could have just uh, envisioned this to be true, but it actually wasn't. Uh, They just hallucinated and it didn't really happen. But yet, the largest hole in that is that hallucinations are vividly, specifically personal. I uh, actually did some research. Gary Sibsey, he's a PhD licensed clinical psychologist, wrote this. I've surveyed the professional literature written by psychologists, psychiatrists, and other relevant healthcare professionals during the past two decades and yet, yet to find a single documented case of a group hallucination. That hallucination specifically occurs in the individual and not by a group case. So then thus, this is a big hole in that theory then. If hallucinations cannot be grouped to many people, now we'd be talking a mass amount because if we remember the appearance, 500, this person, that person, this person, that person, you know, Mary, all this kind of stuff, that would be a mass, mass group of people that it must be true to hallucinate together on the same account. But yet, that's so far to be. That's the largest hole. But not only that, hallucinations are purely visual and lack the physical element. And so how could we reconcile in Luke 24, verse 37, when it says this, they were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. And he said to them, this is Jesus saying, why are you troubled? And why do, you, why do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. Ghosts do not have flesh and bones. And as you see, I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. So even in Jesus' account, it's not only a visual experience, 
but a physical one that they see Jesus. And I love that, like, why do doubts rise in your mind? And what's the next phrase there? Look at me and let the truth before you, the evidence in front of you, conquer your doubts. Take a step through your doubts and trust in truth of me, Jesus, before you. The second one is this conspiracy theory. And this one's a little bit uh, more specific and, and kind of goes about this. Could this, this event of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection just be a giant conspiracy by the disciples? That they knew it was false, yet they huddled up together after Jesus died and said, hey, here's the deal. We're, we're all going to say this. We're going to figure this out. This is how it's going to go down. We're going to say this happened. And yet, for what would they do that for if that were true? Jesus truly didn't rise and they just made it up in conspiracy. What would they do that for? Fame? Money? They didn't receive any of that. And oftentimes, if you think of it, you look through their lives and they were put to death for their very belief in Christ as the risen Savior, their account of him, their, their trust in him. If that were to be the case, then we would have to conclude that they not only died for what they believed in, which many would do, many would do that, die for what they believe in, but they would have to die for what they believed to be really false, that they made up. And, and I, I mean, we could talk through that, but I honestly don't know many or anyone who would go to that length to die for something they truly know to be false in the depths of their heart, but they're living to be true. That, that, that's the giant hole in conspiracy theory that I see today, that I think really has that theory crumbling before us. And albeit both mass hallucination conspiracy, go pursue evidence yourself and read through those. I think they can be enticing or, or, or you think through them and may be reasonable to some regard, but there's these giant holes that, that actually don't explain the full picture. And which I believe, friends, the full picture is that Jesus truly died. He was buried. He was buried in a tomb. He was raised to new life to appear before many, not only then in the physical sense, but to appear before us by his Holy Spirit, that we are able to have a relationship with God that's different because of his resurrection. And if you think back to the very beginning of our time together, when we looked at Paul's like, the what if Jesus didn't rise, here's the truth of the matter for us, that years after the resurrection of Jesus, we get to live in today in truth, is that because of the resurrection, our faith is meaningful that we have an opportunity to grow in faith and trust in Jesus that is meaningful and life-changing and leads to everlasting life that we may experience now and forevermore in eternity. But yet also our testimony is true, that what Jesus has done for us, the way he showed up, the way he's, he's, he's paid for sin and death, like it is true that our witness of God, our testimony of God's goodness in our life can be shared with truth can be shared in accuracy. We carry that truth of God living in us today as followers of him. And finally this, and the most greatest of, of truths that we live in, that we celebrate at Easter together, if Jesus is resurrected from the dead, then our sins are truly forgiven. Amen. If Jesus is resurrected, if all this to be true, our sins are truly forgiven. And that's the Savior we look to. That's the Jesus we follow and the truth and the nature of who he is, but also the great sacrifice he lived and died through burial and resurrection for our sins to be forgiven before God. How wonderful it is, friends, that we're able to wrestle and walk through our doubts and big questions and yet seek after evidence who sh that shows us the way and ultimately submit to the truth 
Next week, we'll jump into the truth of the Bible and, and what that looks like, how it was transmitted, how we received it today, but the truth of God's Word that gives us all life. So if you're asking big questions, maybe one of, this was one of them, and you get to begin to walk through the journey that, remember, doubts are just a step along the way. May you find your hope in Jesus. And to many of you who believe and you've said yes to Christ, you're living in him and continually walking to be more like him, may you find encouragement that by your faith and belief in him, the resurrection holds up to be true. And by that truth, by that account, we are able to stand on new life. Our sins are truly forgiven once and forevermore. All because it's all about Jesus and we thank him for that. So let us pray together as we close. Jesus, thank you so much for this time together, although feeling dense, walking through some, uh, some specific evidence and theories that, uh, that we're just trying to understand, God. We're doing it for the glory of you. We want to know you better, God. We want to build a faith that, that knows you well and can also adequately, with gentleness and respect, defend it truthfully. So God, I pray that as we wrestle through big questions and doubts, and maybe this series just begins to unravel uh, those for us, and as we seek after evidence and truth, as we talked about today, God, I pray that we would be in your word, uh, understanding it as truth from you delivered to us, and God, that we can live by it to give us new life today. And God, I thank you by the new life you give us by your son Jesus, that by his spirit in us, we are, are, are so much so led and, and guided into new everlasting life in you. God, we love you and trust you.